the month of August is upon us. I bet you didn't know this, that August is our national win with civility month. That's what we try to do here on the far middle, win policy debates using logic and doing so in a civil manner. So happy win with civility month to you, constant listeners. Let's jump to our sports dedication for this week. So sitting here at episode 115, that, uh, that means that we've dedicated prior episodes to over 100 greats or events in sports. But even with that large number of prior dedications, there's still going to remain some of your host's all-time favorites that we never had a chance to get to with a dedication. And this episode offers an opportunity to check the box with one of those all-time favorites of mine who evaded a worthy dedication after two-plus years of far-middle installments. That's because we published this episode on August 2nd, and that marks the day back in 1973 when a guy by the name of George Brett logged his first professional hit in the major leagues while with the Kansas City Royals, a team that he would play for through his entire career, 21 seasons in Kansas City, from that 1973 rookie season to 1993 legend. And that journey was quite intriguing, and it amassed over 3,000 hits. And it didn't start out all that great. In 1973, when he was first called up, he batted a paltry 125 and over about a dozen games that season. And he continued to struggle at the plate early next season in 1974, even though he won the third base starting job. But then George Brett did something that is so simple in life, but you see so many people struggle with, talented people struggle with. He asked for help. And lo and behold, help arrived when a form of Charlie Lau, the Royals batting coach, and spending the All-Star break in 1974 working together, Lau taught Brett how to protect the entire plate and cover up some of those holes in his swing that experienced pitchers were exploiting. So after that, George Brett developed rapidly as a hitter, and he finished the 74 season with a 282 batting average, very respectable. Now, 1975 was his breakout year. Uh, Brett topped the 300 mark for the first time. That was going to become a normal thing for him. And he finished the season leading the league in hits and triples. In 1976, he won his first batting title with a 333 average. And the four contenders for the batting title that year, by the way, were George Brett and his Royals teammate, Hal McRae, and Minnesota Twins teammates, Rod Carew, which is another one of your host's all-time favorites, and Lyman Bostock. So in a cool side note, Brett went two for four in the final game of that season when the Royals were actually playing the Twins. So all three of the other rivals for that batting title were playing that day and playing in the same game against one another. We're on the same team. Now his lead over the uh, the second place, Hal McRae, his teammate, ended up being less than .001 when it came to batting average. He won that batting title by that close of a margin. So Hal McRae coming in a close second, that reminds me of that Jerry Seinfeld stand-up routine. I don't know if you saw that one or not uh, when he would do his stand-up when he talks about how the silver medal winner and something like a track and field event feels after losing the gold by 0.01 seconds. That's sort of how um, how McRae might have felt. But Brett's uh, masterpiece of a season was clearly in 1980 when he won the American League MVP, batted 390. That's a modern record at the time for a third baseman. And Brett's batting average was at or above 400 as late in the season as mid-September. And the country closely followed his quest to bat 400 for an entire season. That's a feat that hadn't been accomplished since Ted Williams in 1941. And by the way, I was one of those following as a kid, reading Royals box scores in the newspaper every day that summer. I remember following along. 
to see how uh, George Brett was doing in his quest for 400. And he was clutching the playoffs in 1980 as well. Uh, he was the key reason the Royals beat the hated Yankees in the ALCS. Brett then hit 375 in the 1980 World Series after the ALCS. But the Royals lost that series in six games to the Phillies. And Brett is actually famous for playing hurt in that World Series, or infamous, I might say, because he made national headlines after leaving Game 2 of the World Series due to hemorrhoid pain. And Brett had some minor surgery the next day. Ouch. And in Game 3, he returned to hit a home run as the Royals won in 10 innings, 4-3. to three. After the game, uh, Brett was famously quoted as saying, my problems are all behind me. So George Brett wasn't only famous for hemorrhoids, however. He was also known for the pine tar incident on his bat, of course, one of the most famous flip-outs in the history of sport. This was in uh, the middle of the 1983 season. They were playing again the hated Yankees, this time at Yankee Stadium. Brett ends up hitting a two-run homer off a Hall of Fame pitcher, Goose Gossage, in the top of the ninth with two out, and that puts the Royals up 5-4. to four. But after the home run, that uh, pesky Yankees manager, Billy Martin, uh, he cited to the umpire as a rule stating that any foreign substance on a bat could extend no further than 18 inches from the knob. So the umpires measure the amount of pine tar, which was a legal substance used by hitters to improve their grip, on George Brett's bat, and that was 24 inches long, which led the home plate umpire to signal Brett out and end the game as a Yankees win. So Brett became enraged, of course, charged out of the dugout directly towards the umpire. Um, two umpires and a Royals manager, Dick Hauser, had to physically restrain him. You can see that if you've never had a chance to view it on YouTube. Um, and by the way, after the game, the Royals challenged the call, and American League president Lee McPhail, he ruled that while the bat should have been excluded from future use, the home run should not have been nullified. And after a lot of controversy, the game was resumed on August 18th of that year, 1983, from the point of Brett's home run on, and it ended with a Royals win. So there was sort of an afterward uh, with respect to that incident. And then another thing I loved about Brett, um, he was fiery and he was feisty. I want you also to check out a video, if you haven't seen this one, of the Royals battling the Yankees, where Brett hits a triple and he slides into third and he and the Yankees third baseman, Craig Nettles, who was also feisty, they get into a fist fight at third uh, that ignites a bench clearing brawl. And amazingly, this is what's amazing about baseball from that era, neither player was thrown out and they resume playing with Brett on third next to Nettles. It's uh, not like that in sports anymore, folks. So yeah, over 3,000 hits, a team leader, um, just a consummate player. George Brett, for my money, one of the two best third basemen of all time. The other one being his contemporary, Mike Schmidt, who, like Brett, until this week, we never landed a dedication for. So stay tuned on that one. I think we're going to fit Mike Schmidt in somewhere, constant listeners. We'll need to certainly work that in. Let's jump into the connections for this episode. I just mentioned that uh, George Brett played his entire career in Kansas City over 20 years. Kansas City and other big cities like it used to attract and retain residents who moved there to chase down a dream or pursue a better future. But today that is no longer the case, and not just for Kansas City, but for many large American cities, particularly cities that are run by the left, which are many these days. And now you see residents rushing to escape these cities, including Portland, Oregon. Now, Portland has been a mess for years, 
and I wrote on it extensively in my book, Precipice, Portlanders used to copy that Austin saying of keep Portland weird, and they would embrace its counterculture. But now Portland has devolved into what is close to anarchy. I think that's the best way you could define it. And the counterculture itself has given up on the Rose City. I read a story recently where the stereotypical Portlander resident that you would think of, the typical person from Portland. So this was an individual um, that was an artist, was really into the restaurant scene, um, self-described as a vegan, bookstore lover like myself, um, loved public transportation, was a uh, regular bus rider, but he basically said no more to living in Portland. I mean, why would the perfect prototype of what a Portland resident you would think of or you would, you would envision, why would that individual want to leave? Well, because society has broken down in that city. You have cars that are broken into time and time again. There's problems with home theft and vandalism. Um, walking through human excrement in the neighborhood is never a pleasant thing. You've got rampant drug use in parks. Homeless are aggressive and setting up camps everywhere. And to add insult to injury, despite all these breakdowns and problems, residents still have to deal with sky-high, ever-increasing costs for things like housing and living expenses. And interestingly, extreme politics from the left is alienating the very people the left used to enjoy support from. So you can check out some of these quotes in this story from the resident uh, that I am speaking of. So the first quote that he put out there is, I don't want to talk trash about my home city, even though there's trash everywhere. That's 100% true, by the way. And if you doubt it, or you want to see how bad it is in Portland, you can find a host of different videos online documenting the fetid conditions on the streets and in its parks. Now, this resident also said in the story, I still love Portland. It wouldn't have left if the housing prices weren't so high. Again, our cities, as discussed for some time on the far middle, they're designed today to reject and expel the working and middle classes. And then all that you're left with are the 1% rich and the poor who effectively have no means to escape. The poor are trapped in our largest cities. So people who are able to vote with their feet are doing so in Portland and leaving. And its days of being a gross city are over. Those are long gone. Today, Portland is losing net residents, not growing, and they're losing them at an accelerated rate. Portland suffered the sixth largest decline in population the last few years of America's 50 largest cities. And that is striking when you realize that Portland grew an astounding 23% from 2000 to 2020. So that's a, a very quick and sharp reversal. In Portland, it's not clean, safe, or even hip anymore. It's downright dangerous, but it used to be one of the safest large cities in the country. But then came things like the fund the police, and not surprisingly, you know, crime and homicides exploded. The last two years saw record levels of killings. Similar story with drug use. The city, it decriminalized drug use, and guess what? Drug use went way up in broad daylight around where kids play. Now, businesses are leaving. Uh, maybe the better tents, by the way, might be left. Uh, Portland's downtown, so you see more plywood covering windows and doors of prior retail establishments downtown than stores that are open for business. And the problems are now, interestingly enough, seeping into all of Portland's neighborhoods, including the affluent ones. There was a woman in the story uh, that uh, discussed how she lives in a zip code uh, in Portland or lived in a zip code where the median home price is around a million dollars. 
and she was chased by a homeless man while on her daily jog. Now no more running in uh, that neighborhood outside for her, and her and her husband left the city and moved out further to a safer locale. Now one thing that has been a constant during Portland's demise has been the mayor, and that's Ted Wheeler, who was first elected in 2016. His official position uh, is that rote babble that you hear all the time and so often from these big city mayors who are presiding over the ruining of their cities. So his office uh, in this story says, quote, Mayor Wheeler's top priorities remain addressing the homeless crisis, reducing gun violence, improving livability, and strengthening our economy. Well, if those are his priorities, constant listeners, he is an abject failure because Portland has a worsening homeless crisis, violence is escalating, livability is eroding precipitously, and the economy is quite sick. This constant, listeners, is what happens when the left assumes control of a city over an extended period of time. The hollow talk will continue, but the problems are only going to escalate and pile up until it forms a downward spiral that a city is going to be unable to escape. So Portland is circling in that spiral down as we speak, but it's not alone. The situation, as I said, was called out in Precipice, the left's campaign to destroy America a while back. Read it if you haven't already before your town ends up on the path that Portland is on. One of the biggest problems facing our big cities that are run by the left, I didn't mention when discussing Portland, but it can serve as a good next connection to jump to, and that is public education in big city school districts. You know, in many ways, that may be the most troubling of issues in our urban areas because if the next generation is not being taught and doesn't have decent proficiency in math and science and reading and civics, well, then the city and frankly, the nation, they're going to be in a very, very tough spot for the long term. Unfortunately, that's exactly what is happening across our nation, largely because the left colludes with public sector unions, namely teachers unions to allocate money away from students and into the pockets of the politicians and the public unions themselves. And of course, to avoid any form of accountability. So if test scores are embarrassing, what's the solution? Throw more money at the unions. It's a shakedown of taxpayers. It's a crime against parents and kids. And it also hurts, by the way, great teachers. To put this in perspective for you, let's take the example of one of our nation's largest school districts, that is the Los Angeles Unified School District. A while back, the superintendent of that massive district testified in court that it's not uncommon to take a decade, 10 years plus, and somewhere between $250,000 and $450,000 to fire a bad teacher. Now, that's a long time and a lot of money. Why does it take so long and so much? Well, public teachers' unions protecting bad teachers. That's why. And if you zoom out, from Los Angeles to California in total, if you look at the state in total, the impact these public unions have on teacher accountability is shocking. Fewer than, and listen to this number, fewer than 0.002% of teachers in California were dismissed for unprofessional conduct or poor performance. Now, what does that say about the efficacy of public education in California? What or who is the education system designed to benefit? The student? I don't think so. The parent? Nope. The taxpayer? Certainly not. The good teacher? For sure not. Or maybe instead the poor performing teacher, the public union itself, and the politician. 
I think we know the answer based on the data and the symptoms. Now, lots of people debate affirmative action in college admissions, and I've been following that quite co closely. Um, in the recent Supreme Court decision, you know, it adds to the chorus of debate. But if you really, really wanted to improve the standing of minority students within the broader education system, don't worry first about college admissions. Instead, let's focus intensely on public education reform and choice in the K through 12 arena in our big cities. Way more bang for the buck, much bigger need in terms of scale and immediacy because it's way more of a pressing problem. While our cities crumble, many of the mayors and the other leaders, they remain steadfast on obsessing about tackling climate change, even though the cumulative action of any city in America will have negligible impact on climate and may in fact end up doing more harm than good. So let's connect to that next. And it's not just big city mayors who obsess on this climate change religion. It cuts across the elite leadership of the West from America to Europe and everything else in between. A recent survey of the OECD, which is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is effectively, by the way, all the rich nations across the globe, it found that 60% of the respondents believed the global warming will likely or very likely lead to the end of humans. That's shocking, astounding, and telling all at the same time. So take the blowhard leader of the most global and elitist organization of them all, talking about the Secretary General of the United Nations. Now check out the quote, uh, which are pretty much the same type of statements that you hear other elites spout off all the time. Quote, the world is facing a grave climate emergency. Every week brings new climate-related devastation. Floods, drought, heat waves, wildfires, superstorms. We're in the middle of a battle for our lives. Climate change is the biggest threat to the global economy. So you, you take a look at those statements. That's not the leader of a religious cult. That's the head of the UN. Or wait, is there even a difference these days? But what, what are the facts? You know, what is the true science? How about the accurate data? What do they say? Well, when you scrape away the rhetoric and the fire and brimstone and you soberly assess data, you come away with a very different take. And allow me to provide you some of the data and the facts. Let's start with hurricanes. Let's talk a little bit about hurricanes, those superstorms that we've been told are occurring more and more often and that are stronger than ever. Well, since 1900, I'm sorry to tell you, the annual number of U.S. hurricanes is declining. It's not increasing. The same is true, by the way, for Category 3 or worse storms. So severity is not getting worse either. And when you look at data globally, not just for the U.S., but globally, satellite data from 1980 to now shows measured hurricane energy is dropping, not rising. Heck, 2022 was the second lowest recorded year on record for global hurricane energy. Code red? Not when it comes to hurricanes, constant listeners, not even close. Let's maybe talk a minute about wildfires. Now, wildfires, certainly topical this summer with the Quebec and Western Canadian wildfires blowing smoke down to the U.S. and our East Coast and causing an epic freak out by major media. The world is burning up, right? Wrong. Satellite data comes to the fore again because satellite data show there's been a decline and a dramatic decline over the past 25 years for the amount of burned area due to fire on a global scale. 
not what you hear in the news or from the elite, is it? How about uh, humans being killed and wiped out by climate change? Hardly the case. The data prove it. In the 1920s, 500,000 people died every year on average due to climate across the globe. That's a lot of people. By the 2010s, the average number of people dying from climate, from issues like floods and drought, storms, fires, and extreme temperatures, 18,000. So that average per year in the 1920s was 500,000 down to 18,000 in the 2010s. My goodness, not the storyline out there, is it? And by the way, in 2022, the number of global deaths due to climate was 11,000. Humans adapted to climate, no matter how climate changed, whether it got warmer, colder, whatever the case might be. And how do we adapt? With innovation and technology. Climate won't get you any more than the boogeyman will, or the devil, to put it in religious parlance. But you know what will get you? The waste that is tied to this forced energy transition based on the myth of code red instead of data and facts that we just discussed. So we talked in the past how trillions of dollars get thrown at subsidy and mandates and regulations justified off of code red zealotry. And I refer you to the Copenhagen Consensus Center. This is a think tank, an excellent one, that studies the efficacy, the efficiency of climate policies when it comes to policy bang for the buck. So give that Copenhagen Consensus Center a look online. Here are two case studies that the center assessed that put what I'm talking about into perspective. First, the Copenhagen Consensus Center studied the EU's 2020 policy to reduce CO2 by 20% and increase renewables by 20%. What was the net economic result? It might surprise and anger you if you live in Europe. Every dollar the EU spent on this climate program led to a reduction of three cents in reduced climate damages. That's an efficacy of 3%, which is a joke. Giving away the money would have been more efficient. Now, the center also studied one of my favorites, which is the Paris Climate Accord. If every nation that made a commitment in the accord, which, by the way, excludes China making hard commitments, which is all you need to know about the Paris Climate Accord, but if all the nations that did make commitments followed through, it would deliver 11 cents of climate benefit for every dollar spent. That's almost as bad as the EU. Yes, the, uh, the separation of fact from the fiction that climate policies are based on is maddening, but it just continues to march on. In fact, it gets nuttier as the flaws of the energy transition are exposed. I'll give you an example with the next connection. The Snake River in Washington State. It's got dams on it to provide cheap and affordable power across that region. Now, the federal government wants to remove those dams, four of them in total, thus taking away 3,000 megawatts of hydropower, that's a lot, which would require, if you wanted to replace it, with over 6,000 acres of land to be dedicated to solar. Now, what is the justification for the dam removal? To protect salmon on the river. But here's the problem. The science and the data conflict with the need or the crisis with the salmon. And the federal government is caught in a bit of a charade of wordsmithing. Let me explain. So in 2008 and in 2014, NOAA, which is the National Ocean and Atmospheric Administration within the federal government, said that it's not necessary to breach the Snake River dams to protect the salmon. They studied this and they said the salmon will be fine because the salmon population was growing on the river with the use of fish ladders 
and the salmon population was not shrinking. Then in 2020, the Department of Energy came to the same conclusion of not needing to tear down the dams. But this is the Code Red era, remember, where Washington is run by high priests of a religion, not sober assessors of science and data. So now NOAA, in 2022, has reversed course and now says that those damn dams must come down to save the salmon so they can, I guess, end up boiling in heated rivers from rising CO2. And two quotes from Noah show how government gets caught in an illogical lie. The first quote is the standard environmental babble. It says, quote, the science robustly supports riverscape scale process-based stream habitat restoration, dam removal, and ecosystem-based management, end quote. Now that's Noah screaming, tear down that dam in the name of Code Red. And our government used to challenge totalitarians to tear down walls in Berlin, and now it forces its own citizens to tear down useful infrastructure. But note the referencing of the science in that quote, right? Was the the exact phrase, the science robustly supports. Well, check out the next statement from Noah about whether the science shows taking down dams helps the salmon. The authors of the Noah report admit they can provide no, quote, precise measures or quantitative estimates of the magnitude of biological benefit, end quote, from removing those dams. And they added they have no evidence to supersede or modify existing analyses. That's using their language. This is amazing when you think about it. The federal government first says, no problem with keeping these dams in place and the 3,000 megawatts of cheap and reliable hydropower that come with them. The salmon are doing just fine with the dams and with the fish ladders. Then the religious zealots take charge of government And now NOAA says the science robustly supports tearing down the dams, but it says it can't tell you how much it will help the salmon and that they have no evidence to rebut the prior position of the dams being okay. Now, what's this all about really? A few things. First, it's not about salmon or climate or CO2. That's all cover and smokescreen for what it's really about. It's about control of the individual, of business, control of energy use, control of decision-making. You take down these dams, you lose reliable energy and replace it with scarcity or costly energy like solar. That reigns in freedom and it reigns in choice and it makes you or business or society more dependent on government and the state. And if government can do that without having to put their necks out with scientific estimates of the impact on salmon that can be tracked and that the bureaucrat could be held accountable for, all the better. It seems ridiculous, but it's happening, and not just with dams in the Pacific Northwest. But there is hope that this scam gets exposed soon. It's happening already, in fact, in places like the UK, which we can connect to now. The Labor Party there, which is, again, the center-left party, is in the middle of an about-face reversal when it comes to energy and climate policies and ideology reality and science set in, and they can set in fast. In January of this year, so at the start of the year, the leader of the Labor Party pledged to shut down the UK's North Sea oil and natural gas fields. He said the answer for Britain's energy future would not involve new investment or new fields for oil and gas. Now, that position was a core commandment, of course, of the Code Red congregation. But then came, through the course of this year, inflation, and the UK was racked with inflation. 
and scarcity and rising interest rates from the central bank to tame inflation. And citizens started to ask WTF. So now that same Labor Party leader in June did a reversal and said the government would allow production of oil and natural gas to continue at least under existing leases, which basically, when you look at the existing leases, covers the entire North Sea field. Maybe it's time for us in the states to start asking WTF to our leaders and policymakers here to hold them to account for the basis of decisions being made that impact every American, to make sure they're not being set to follow a rigid religion that we will all end up paying the price for in more ways than one. As we close episode 115, let me wish a happy birthday to the greatest actor to have never won an Oscar. August 2nd marks the birthday of the late, great Peter O'Toole, Lawrence of Arabia himself, and King Henry III, I might add. Eight-time nominee for an Oscar, but never a winner. He went up against some unfortunate stiff competition, so his timing uh, was a bit unfortunate. One year, uh, he lost to Marlon Brando, who won for the Godfather role, um, which, by the way, Marlon Brando declined to accept. Uh, Another year, uh, O'Toole lost to Robert De Niro for De Niro's work in Raging Bull. But no doubt about it, Peter O'Toole was a great actor, and he was a wild man with his drinking escapades being legendary. Uh, Drinking cost him quality of life since the early 1980s, um, but he did make it into his 80s age-wise before passing away, and he didn't seem to mind. He once quipped that the only exercise he got was walking behind the coffins with friends in them who dedicated their lives to exercise. I leave you with a bit of an inspirational quote from O'Toole. I will stir the smooth sands of monotony. That's what we try to do on the far middle, and I encourage you to do the same in your own special way. See you in a week.